Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I hope you'll remember that in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 through 26, in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 through 28, there were prophecies given of David coming to be a shepherd of the people of God. And that name David is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. Those are not the only places that refer to David coming in the future, though he had been dead 500 years to be the shepherd of God's people, but those are two of them. And there are other prophecies, even more ancient, one of which hopefully we'll get to today, about the shepherd work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at John chapter 10, it's important for us to remember that the chapter divisions though providentially used by God in our Bibles, are not inspired, and they sometimes will separate passages of Scripture that should be kept a little closer together. And so we we want to learn to appreciate them because they are an address system for our Bibles that is very efficient, but sometimes they cause us to miss connections between chapters. I am thinking of one right now, that came up at the prayer meeting on Thursday evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 says this, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. What promises? It's the first verse of the chapter. Right. But if you go into the last five verses of chapter 6, there are seven wonderful promises there about God being our God, God being our Father, we being His children, we being His people, Him dwelling with us, Him bringing us into His tabernacle, Him not leaving us. They are fantastic promises for us being separate from this world and not touching the unclean things of false religion. And so there it says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. After having said what God will do, we're then told this is what we need to do to have those promises fulfilled in our lives. And so here, we don't want to forget John 9. And I want, to look, I want you to look at the last sentence of verse 34 of John 9, that hopefully in just five words we can understand what went before John 10. And they cast him out. Who did they cast out? The man born blind. The man that Jesus, the good shepherd, healed. They cast him out. They cast him out of what? Out of the known church. The visible church at that time. They cast him out. Who cast him out? The ministers of that church cast him out. The scribes and the Pharisees cast him out. Out of temple worship, out of synagogue worship, they cast him out. That's taking a sheep and throwing him over the wall of the sheepfold. Throw him to the wolves. Mm -hmm. That is the context. It helps us appreciate John chapter 10. John chapter 10, let me read the first five verses. Verily, verily, Jesus preached, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, 
he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Today I would like to start with these five verses. We're going to cover some ground that we covered last Lord's Day, and it needs to be covered because I want to help you understand the first 18 verses of this chapter. I don't want you to be confused and to engage in speculative, theological, or soteriological considerations that will distract you from the real lesson that's laid here. The real lesson is there are two kinds of ministers in the world. There's everybody else and there's Jesus. And if we want to simplify it to start with, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and the, really the only one that counts. Uh, the under-shepherds are so inferior to him, they should hardly be called shepherds, but yet they are in the Word of God. We want, to, we want to be faithful with rightly dividing the Word of truth that we don't get hung up on details of parables. And the Lord willing, when we meet again on Wednesday night for a family night Bible study, the next time, it will be about parables and proverbs and how they're to be interpreted. Because too many errors are made by getting caught up in the details of parables. What I want to say to you by reading just the first five verses, and I am very careful in saying this to you, there isn't very much about Jesus Christ in those five verses. The five verses are to tell you what the relationship is like between a real shepherd and his sheep. The Jews understood it because shepherding, sheep raising, was a large part of their industry, a large part of their economy. It was a, big, a large industry in their economy. So it, they understood every single phrase of this. We, not having raised sheep before, need these verses to help us understand how a shepherd and sheep get along and the care they have for each other, the knowledge they have of each other, and how the sheep know the shepherd, know his voice, and the shepherd calls his sheep by name, leads them out, gets them pasture, always enters by the door of authority and ownership, and he's not like a thief or a robber crawling over the door in some other way. But the primary lesson is sheep and shepherds, because there is no I am yet. And the first I am that we are going to encounter is in verse 7, and he's not going to say, I am the shepherd. Now we have a shepherd introduced in these five verses, and the shepherd is the one that goes through the door for the sheep. But Jesus is not going to start in verse 7 by saying, I am the shepherd. He's going to start in verse 7 by saying, I am the door. Right. And he's going to give us a shade of distinction for just a couple of verses, because then in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And so we've got to recognize that he's the door and he's the shepherd. If we look at the first five verses and you want to say, well, the shepherd that goes through the door and calls his sheep, that's got to be the Lord Jesus. Yes, but when Jesus dealt with those five verses, Jesus said, I am the door. Right. I just want to show you the difficulty of it. And I want to show you the error of it. God's people want to run into these five verses and pull apart every phrase. And so I want to play with you just for a moment. And I did this last Lord's Day, but I'm doing it again because I want to teach you some lessons in interpretation. And these lessons are a weight and a burden on every faithful minister of God because the Word of God is not simply to be read like a, a Dr. Seuss book 
and to tell you whose thought is and what ball he's chasing. And Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. There's a lot of effort to be put into it to rightly divide what's the parable and what the doctrine of the parable is, what the lesson of the parable is. You know, you try to, try to show me exactly what the sheepfold is. What does it mean to climb up some other way? How do false teachers climb? Do they use spikes on their, their boots? You say, well, you're getting so... Oh, no, I am not. Right. You, if you start down the path of trying to pull these phrases apart... I want to ask you some questions. To him the porter openeth. Who's the porter? Is Jesus the shepherd here? If you make Jesus the shepherd, who's the porter? If Jesus is the porter, who's the shepherd? But Jesus said he's the door. So who is the shepherd and who's the porter? Anybody that, anybody that lived in Israel knew these things and knew they were just part of the parable. They were just part of the story that's going to lead to a lesson that there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. And the bad shepherds are either thieves or robbers, and they're not even connected to the sheep at all, or they are day laborers that are called hirelings who are only doing it for a career and have no vested interest in the sheep. And the Lord Jesus Christ is no thief or robber because he came through the door of divine authority to be the Messiah of the sheep. Neither is he a hireling because he laid down his life for the sheep. But that's going to develop in the following verses. Jesus starts off by saying, I am the door. I want to ask you, who is the porter? Oh, could I, could I preach you a sermon about the porter? Of course. If I wanted to preach the way that some preach, I could bring tears to your eyes about the porter and opening the door. But that's not what we're supposed to get out of it. We're supposed to get a door out of it, and then we're supposed to get a good shepherd. Right. Then they, go for, they get into verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. Here we go. The sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name. I want to ask you, if you get excited about those words and thinking about Jesus Christ, is this Jesus calling his sheep out of the grave in the great day when he's going to return? Because it says, the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout. Is that his voice calling his sheep by name? Or do we jump back to John chapter 5 and verse 25? See, that would be going back to John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that in the grave shall hear his, voice. hear his voice. Yeah, we could connect those two and make ourselves a snowball and watch it melt under the heat of God's examination of our Bible methods. Or we can jump back to verse 25, and this is regeneration. And so we get regeneration out of John chapter 10 and verse 3. He calleth his own sheep by name. Or is this a practical calling of them through the gospel? Here we go. And so we have a divided church. Our church splits into three camps. We are the final call group. We are the regenerating call group. And we're the gospel call group. And so we end up with three churches in Greenville that have separated by tearing apart a parable of Jesus where all he was reminding them was that the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep is unique and special and loving and tender and intimate. And thieves and robbers have to sneak in some other way because they have no authority. They are not the Messiah of the sheep. They're not really the shepherd. And hirelings are inferior as well. So I want to tell you that 
with much prayer, labor, this is not the first time this has been preached to you, with much prayer and labor, the first five verses are simply laying down a story, an explanation of an industry in the Jews' economy. It's a story like this. And a Samaritan passed by and saw the wounded Jew in a ditch and picked him up and put him on his ass and poured in oil and wine and took him to an inn and gave two pence to the innkeeper and told him to keep him. And if he incurred any more expense, he would pay that later. Why don't you tell me what the oil is? I'm going to tell you the oil is worthless information. Do you think I like saying those words? I say them with great care. I'm going to ask you what the wine is. It's worthless information. As far as drawing some specific doctrine from it. The two pence. Could it have been three pence? If it had been three pence, would it have messed up the parable? No. Are you with me? Could it have been ten pence? Could it have been a talent? Could it have been a few farthings? It was two pence. Should we make that the two testaments of the Bible? It was an inn. Could it have been someone's house? Should we make the inn a church? Should we make the innkeeper the pastor? Should we make the Samaritan a preacher of the gospel? What is the story for then? If all those details don't have meaning, what is the story for? Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at that. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Lawyers love to pick on words. A previous president of a previous president of a previous president played with some words. Do you remember? Okay, that's all I'm gonna say. Lawyers love to play with words, and politicians love to play with words. We don't want to play with words. We want to understand the words of the living God. And I want to share with you that the first five verses are simply to get you acclimated and up to speed on an industry of the Jews' economy, and that is sheep and shepherds, and we're not going to go in and pull every single one of these apart. And a stranger will they not follow. Do God's people ever follow false teachers? Absolutely. Then what are you going to do with this? You are in serious trouble if you don't take the path I'm laying out for you. Do sheep ever follow a stranger? Real sheep. No, they don't. Why? Because they are used to the very tonal inflections of their shepherd. And I have sent you links in years past where you can see a shepherd calling strangers, visitors, tourists, like you or I would be if we ever got near a sheepfold, to the fence and telling them the call. And then they try the call in every inflection that they can generate by their vocal cords, and the sheep don't even raise their heads. Then the shepherd uses his voice, and those sheep pop up and move. And if there's multiple flocks in a field, only one flock will come to that shepherd's voice. And I sent you links showing you this because we're, we're ignorant when it comes to sheep and shepherds. That's ver- the first five verses. Then we have this key. 
that I appreciate by the Holy Spirit. And by John writing, This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them, because all it was was a description of an industry of the Jews about sheep. Jesus is going to start explaining with his first I am in verse 7. I am the door. Verse 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He's going to distinguish himself from thieves and robbers. Then he will distinguish himself from hirelings. But this parable, I thank you, Lord of heaven, for telling us that it's a parable right in context and where you positioned the sixth verse. After the first five, before Jesus claims to be any part of it. I, I hope that you can see and understand where I'm going. Verse 6, this parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Why is it so obvious to you and to some other preachers that every one of those phrases has deep theological or soteriological meaning? Where did it come from? It's the speculative, creative mind of man that wants to find something special. Let's find something special in these words. I am the door. Now that is special. Because I know that when we read through the first five verses the first time, you never thought of Jesus being the door. You thought of Jesus being the shepherd going through the door, but Jesus said he was the door. So you were already wrong with your best guess. And your best guess is very different from the rest of your guesses about this passage. Because you don't have a clue who the porter is. Or who the thieves and the robbers are, hardly. Verse 6, this parable. Okay, will you give me a, will you allow me a few minutes? Thus far, there's been no I. Thus far, it's just sheep, shepherds, thieves, and robbers, and porters. Not until verse 7. Oh, you say, I see an I in verse 1. I say unto you, good. There is an I there, but he doesn't say what he is in the parable. That comes in verse 7. Lord, help us. Heavenly Father, I've prayed it a million times, a trillion times in private. Never let us misdivide your scriptures. Let us never find less than you intended, nor more than you intended. Let us find what you intended. Let us give the sense and cause the people to understand the reading. Heavenly Father, I will flush anything I've ever said. I will embrace things I have said were in error if you show us. But you will have to show us with a tsunami of evidence. And I thank thee for the sufficient evidence in this passage to know that where we are headed is the right path. In Jesus' name, I thank thee. Amen. Amen. This parable, thus far... He's the door only, is what he'll say in seven. And that door, that shade of meaning, door versus shepherd's important. Because it tells how we get into the sheepfold. And there's only, <laughs> there's only one way into the sheepfold. And it's by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he doesn't start with being the shepherd. He starts with being the door because he says in verse 9, I am the door for the second time because he's, he's telling you why he said I am the door before he said I am the shepherd because when you read the first five verses, you leap to the conclusion that he was the shepherd. But he said he was the door because he wants to put a shade of meaning on it before he gets to being the shepherd. So he says in verse 9, he tells you why he said he was the door. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Men press themselves into the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us by repentance, they press themselves in by repenting before the one coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we press ourselves in the kingdom of heaven by repenting and being baptized in the name of the one who came 2,000 years ago, the same one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why there's this little distinction for just a few verses. It runs from verses 7 through 10, if you want to go all the way to 10, because verse 11 is, I am the good shepherd, and he's moving forward in his lesson. This is very painful for me. This is very heavy for me. And I hardly ever tell you when things are painful or heavy for me. But God knows, and a little woman that happens to live with me knows. And a brother who called me at the wrong time yesterday knows that I grieve about decisions like this because I know that there have been sermons preached from the first five verses that have brought tears to people's eyes. But I want to share with you that there have been sermons preached about the Good Samaritan that have brought tears to people's eyes and they didn't even know what they were preaching. Most men are very confused about the nature of Proverbs and parables and their right interpretation. Proverbs and parables are not earthly aphorisms or stories to make truth easy for the ignorant or uneducated people. Parables are extended proverbs. Do you want to know the definition of a parable? An extended proverb or riddle. That's what a parable is. Are riddles easy? No. Try the friends of Samson sometime. Parables are extended proverbs or riddles needing careful interpretation to get the right lesson. Let me show you. Look at John 16. We're in the Gospel of John. This is going to come up later with Jesus' own apostles. John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17, those five chapters are very intimate conversation between Jesus and his apostles hours before the crucifixion. Hours. Last, between the Last Supper and crucifixion. The last minutes of his life. Here's what had to go down in John 16 as part of this. Jesus said in 16.25, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. Where's a proverb? Parables and Proverbs are related to each other. A parable is an extended proverb. You can call them either. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you Plainly, that's the word we want. Plainly versus Proverbs. Plainly versus parables. And verse 29, his disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. See, we get excited when the Lord says something expressly. Aren't there places in the Bible that you love where it says expressly? Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. I get very excited in 1 Timothy 4 when it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. Because when the, speaketh, when the Spirit speaketh obscurely, Jonathan Crosby gets scared. But when he says he speaketh expressly, he gets excited. 
we know this one. Because he's going to say it plainly. But look at here in the last, this is after three and a half years. The apostles are still whining and Jesus still understands they can't understand his Proverbs. Look at, uh, look at Ezekiel chapter 17. I know it's a long ways away from John, but I, I just want to show you. Because I used a word that you haven't seen yet, and you're wondering, why did you use the word riddle? Okay. I want you to question every word that I use. Except keto, I can't find it in the Bible. Or bacon. Ezekiel 17 and verse 2. Son of man... Put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. Oh, yes. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us by your thesaurus. Amen. This is the Lord's thesaurus. This is the Lord's setting up of synonyms for us. A riddle and a parable. Yes. Now we know that parables are not the easiest things in the world to figure out. Thank you, Lord, for telling us that. What, what are these parables, proverbs, riddles called in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 5 and 6? The dark sayings of the wise that need to be interpreted because they weren't written by Dr. Seuss. They were written by the God of heaven and he wrote the Bible perfectly. He wrote the Bible to keep wisdom from men that don't deserve it. And he wrote the Bible to give wisdom to us who will humble ourselves and come as little children. Trust me. Take your little child and show him John 10. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Now that's a proverb. How many building committees have used Proverbs 29 and verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish? The people are sitting in a building that they've only paid for, they've only paid half the mortgage off. It seats 300 people and it has plenty for them. But the building committee gets up and throws up slides and the first slide is Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Then they show a building that's going to cost 10 times as much and ask the people to go out on a limb with them to get a mortgage for this building that is 10 times as much because if you don't have a vision about growing, the people perish. Oh, that verse has been used that way so many times by every building committee except ours. Amen. You have never had Proverbs 29, 18 laid on you. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I wonder what the second half of that proverb might be for our learning. Well, here's the second half. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So the vision is not a building ten times larger. The vision is knowing God's will. Right. Where there is no vision, where God is not revealing himself to his prophets by visions, the people perish because they don't have the word of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. When men have a revelation of the law of God and are able to keep God's commandments, then they're happy, which is the opposite of perishing in their ignorance of not knowing God's will for their lives. Right. Amen. Where, no, where, why do they make so many errors? Because they don't want to understand that Proverbs are riddles. And riddles are not easily visible as to what they mean. And so it takes work. But it's pleasant work. Most of the time. Okay, look at Luke 10. And I know you could be thinking to yourself, your time management is showing up again, your lack of. But I listen, I want you to understand John 10. Amen. 
And I want you to understand the rest of the New Testament in the Gospels because there are so many parables. I have had... Could this church split into three camps? If you don't think this church is capable of splitting into three camps, you have not. You don't know much about church history. I've had war in this church before with ignorant people who wanted to tell me that leaven has to mean sin. I won't name any names. War. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Be very careful. I am playing with you. What I just said is I wasn't playing with you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. What is leaven in that state? Don't think about the Bible verse, the statement. <laughs> it's yeast. And that's all that it is. Yeast affects the whole lump. Right. So in some places where it says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it was the incestuous fornicator in that church that was affecting the whole church because it was corrupting the Lord's Supper by the, by the rest of the church because they were allowing that fornicator there. So that was a little leaven in, a, in the lump, was affecting the whole lump. But then it says that the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman hid in, ye, in, in meal, and it affected the whole thing. Is leaven sin in that particular case? No, not at all. It's the opposite. It's the kingdom of God. And so what, what meaning does it have there? The kingdom of God started off small. Do you know how small of an amount of leaven that you put in bread? Now Mark Marunick knows. It's just a small amount that you put in bread, but it affects the whole lump. And those of you who baked with me at Schlotzky's in the past know that it was only a small amount that went in because the kingdom of God started off small, but by the time it got finished, did they say that it turned the world upside down? Amen. Did Christianity hit all the continents of the world and all the nations of the earth? Yes. So don't go telling me that leaven is sin. Leaven is only sin in certain places where the context tells us it's sin. But there are ignorant people that like to speculate with parables. And why do they like to speculate with parables? Because you can't prove them wrong very easily. Because they're out in no man's land. Because there are no verses in the Bible to stop you. Because you can just make it anything you want. If you tell me that the oil that the Good Samaritan poured into the wounded Jew's wounds is the Holy Ghost and the wine is the gospel, are there verses that support those two things? Yes, there are. And you can go down this road and you can preach a whole, you could preach a series of messages on the Good Samaritan because you could preach a sermon about the wine and you could preach a sermon about the oil. And neither of them have anything to do with the lesson. Right. He could have poured in sterilized water. He could have put a Band-Aid on the wounds. The lesson is, who is my neighbor? A cultural enemy is your neighbor when that cultural enemy has had circumstances come upon him that are an act of God, and you are the first one to happen upon him, and you can do something about it. Right. The Good Samaritan, it's in Luke 10. Verses 29 through 37. Look at it. Luke 10, 29 through 37. I will try to pick up the pace when I'm able to pick up the pace. This is how the Lord's led me. I don't want you to make mistakes with parables, and I'm going to follow this up in uh, 10 days, Lord willing, at the next time we get together for a family night Bible study. Luke 10, 29 through 37. 
is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Some preach salvation from it with the wounded Jew representing sinners. Though the Bible does say we're dead in trespasses and sins, and even good Samaritans can't help a dead sinner. The Samaritan's a preacher. The wine's the gospel message. The oil's the Holy Spirit. The two pence for the two testaments of Scripture. And the inn for a local church and the innkeeper, the pastor of that church. And they can preach a sermon that'll bring tears to your eyes. So, if I could get serious for three minutes and listen to Joel, I might get tears in my eyes. (laughs) But I can't get serious with Joel. Many get foolishly creative and assign meaning to the details of the parable and lose the lesson. And this is the lesson. The details don't matter. I've had questions in this church in the last six weeks. How does a drop of water on a finger help a man in hell? It doesn't. It's just to show the severity of the situation that the man would even ask for a drop. Why do you even want to go down that road? What are you going to learn from it? Haven't I made hell hot enough? I'll preach it again next Sunday. I'll get hell warmed up for you. If you think you need to be thinking about a drop of water on a fingertip landing on your tongue. The Lord likes to make some pretty severe examples in some of his parables. Embrace them. But get the lesson. Get the lesson. There's a difference between going to heaven and hell and the two people can't cross over to each other. And if they don't hear the word of God that's preached in the synagogues, it's not going to help no matter what were to happen. They're going to hell. Let's just get the basic lesson. The whole purpose of this parable of the Good Samaritan is found in verse 29 and verse 37. Jesus sandwiched it for us. Verse 29, the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If you want to tell me that to please God, I need to love God and love my neighbor as myself, then who is my neighbor? Lawyers love to play games with words, and that's all that it is. It's a game. There is no valid reason for that question. That is a stupid, scornful, ridiculous question. And when I get foolish and unlearned questions, you don't get answers. I don't answer foolish and unlearned questions. Why don't I answer foolish and unlearned questions? Because I'm told not to answer them, because they are the people asking them don't deserve an answer. Anyone asks in sincerity to learn truth, I will do anything in my power to help them. A scorner. And so he gets cut off with a lesson they did not want to hear. And the lesson that they didn't want to hear was a cultural enemy. Because there, was a, there were Levites and a priest that passed by that were of the same culture, the same nation as the wounded Jew and did nothing, but it was a good Samaritan. And so that, that really hits us deep if we understand the lesson. Who is my neighbor when the Bible says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? Is it the person living next door? Not really. That's cheating. Is it my friends? No, not really. That's cheating. Is it your cousin? No, that's cheating. It's a cultural enemy that you hate and they hate you. But he's in a situation where he could use your help, so you stop and help him. In verse 30. 
6, Jesus said, Which now of these three thinkest thou, lawyer, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy unto him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. That's how you keep the second commandment. And so that whole lesson, I know I'm repeating myself, that whole lesson is who is my neighbor. That whole lesson is how to keep the second commandment. And the details of it are, are quite irrelevant. Right. He could have put a Band-Aid on the wounds. He could have wound them up. He could have gone and got a compression Band-Aid from Walmart. He, he could have put him in a Jeep Wrangler instead of on his asses. It, none of that stuff matters. Right. Sometimes the Lord helps us with a verse before and a verse after. That's why I'm pointing out verse 6. John inter interfering in the passage and saying, Jesus spoke this parable and no one knew what he was talking about. Then Jesus says, I am the door when you wanted him to be the shepherd. You wanted him to be the shepherd so bad in those first five verses, it was hurting you. And then Jesus said, I am the door. Because he wants you to think of some angles on it that aren't readily apparent. The prodigal son has confused many. It's Luke 15. Some get distracted by the details and assume it teaches how to be a good father. They think that it teaches how to divide an inheritance with children. The last thing in the world I would ever do is what that father did to that prodigal. And that's to give him half of the assets of the family estate, knowing that he was going to go waste it in riotous living in a foreign country with whores. Are you kidding me? You think that's what it's teaching? How to restore sinning church members. No, if you want to know how to restore sinning church members, then go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where it tells us how to restore sinning, repenting church members. The purpose in the lesson, the purpose in the lesson of the prodigal son, is it primarily about the prodigal son or primarily about the elder brother? Right. It's primarily about the elder brother because it's a rebuke against him for resenting the celebration of a repenting sinner. Because the entirety of Luke 15, one sheep out of a 90 and 9 that need no repentance. Hello? Are there sheep, are there people, are there sinners that need no repentance? No. Or there's 10 coins and one's lost. The angels in heaven rejoice, but the elder brother didn't want to rejoice because he was like the Pharisees. Because verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15 tell us this is against the Pharisees who saw Jesus eating with repentant sinners and rebuked him for it. Oh, you're close by. We're at Luke 10. Just flip over to Luke 15. Look at the first two verses. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. That is the entirety of Luke 15. Because you have 99 sheep that Jesus said don't need to repent because they're self-righteous. And one that does repent and is found by the shepherd. Oh, and the stuff that comes out of the, the good Samaritan. Do you mean to tell me that when I repent, God doesn't meet me halfway? Listen, if you've repented, God's already come all the way. What are you talking about? Did I teach that in the R factor? but we're going to teach it from other places in the Bible, not just Luke 15. Because right, right. Luke 15 has more than that for you. It's to rebuke the elder brother 
that we don't celebrate like the angels in heaven when a sinner repents because we resent them being able to live such a sinful life, then repent and have it all blown away. Lord, save us from such self-righteous thinking. The sower, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Matthew 13. We read Matthew 13, 10 through 17, where the disciples asked Jesus, why are you speaking to them in parables? And Jesus explains why, that he's hiding the lesson from them, but he will explain it to his apostles outside of their hearing. And we use the passage many times to show why Jesus preached with parables. This chapter tells us that Jesus preached with parables all the way through it. Let's see. Verse 3, Matthew 13, 3, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Verse 34, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them. Now, how much did they get out of a sermon like that? Not very much, because even the apostles couldn't figure them out. And Jesus had to explain to his apostles. But we have the parable of the sower. There's a wayside hearer that the devil comes and snatches away the word of God. There is a stony ground. The seed lands on stony ground. It springs up, but it has a shallow root system. And so when the sun rises on it, it doesn't bear fruit. There's a thorny ground seed that lands, and it springs up, but the thorns grow up around it and choke it out so it doesn't bear fruit. And then there's good ground. And some bears 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Okay. What do they do with that? Obviously, the good ground was made good by God. That's regenerate elect. And they're converted. I don't know why God only regenerates some 30-fold and regenerates others 60-fold and regenerates others a hundredfold, but let's just run it for the moment. Think about it. Then there's two grounds where they hear the word of God and they leap up, but they're choked out or they're burned away by persecution. Those are unconverted elect. Because see, they don't follow through with conversion, but they're God's elect because they spring up. Then there's a wayside here. The devil comes and snatches it away. They're reprobates, obviously. Isn't it obvious to you? No, it's not very obvious because it's a parable. Are you with me, though, on how they explain it? There's reprobate hearers. There's unconverted elect, two in the middle. And then there's God's regenerate elect that reach full conversion. The answer is in Luke 8.18 and is not in Matthew. If you stick with Matthew, you will not get the bottom line that we want. We had a bottom line for the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? There's a bottom line for this one. And we had a bottom line for the prodigal son. Where was the bottom line? The first two verses. The Pharisees murmuring at Jesus for sitting with sinners and not rejoicing not rejoicing with him and the angels of heaven over repenting sinners because those are the only sinners Jesus ever sat with more than once. We're repenting sinners. Luke 8 and verse 18. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 and verse 18. And if you write in your margins, 
you will want Luke 8, 18 beside Matthew 13, 10 through 17. Because Luke 8, 18 is Jesus drawing a conclusion from the parable of the sower. Take heed, therefore. The therefore is drawing a conclusion from the parable of the sower. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. How ye hear. Because you can hear different ways. And so take heed how ye hear. And he's referring to his apostles. Take heed, therefore, because of the parable I just gave you, the lesson of it is for you to take heed how you hear because you can hear any one of those four ways. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he seemeth to have. Have you ever listened to the preaching of God's word like a wayside hearer? And the devil snatches it away. And by the time you get home, you can barely remember what was even preached, let alone be convicted by it. Have you sprung up with joy and by Tuesday forgot your conviction? Have you sprung up with joy and with a little persecution, you decided not to follow through with some commitment to Christ? Have you heard the gospel and sometimes responded with 30-fold fruit bearing? Have you heard it at other times and responded with 60-fold fruit bearing? Have you responded at other times and it's been a hundredfold fruit bearing? It really changed your life. We have, we have listened and heard the gospel and responded to it in all those ways. The good ground is not regenerate ground, except any ground to ever hear properly has to be regenerate. But there isn't a lesson about regeneration in Matthew 13. Right. It's how we hear. We choose to have good ground. Because the good ground... See, you look at the word good ground. Well, there's only one good, and he would have to make us good because we're dead in trespasses and sins. You're running down a path that isn't there. The good ground, what is it? It's not stony, it's not wayside, and it doesn't have thorns, and that's all it is. It's good ground. Good ground for what? Good ground for throwing seed because it'll grow there because there's no thorns, there's no stones, and there's no wayside. There's not a sidewalk. You know, throwing in the sidewalk, the birds tend to eat it because it doesn't grow very fast in a sidewalk. That's a waste. Are you with me? It's our choice. How are we going to hear? You're going to hear like good ground. Good is not being regenerate ground. Good is fulfilling the parable. And the parable is just saying there's sidewalks, there's, there's ground with thorns, there's stony ground that doesn't have deep soil, then there's good ground that has deep soil, no sidewalk, and no thorns, and that's the kind of here we're supposed to be. Right. Lord, I'm trying. I'm in quicksand, and the more I struggle, the deeper I slip, in my opinion, but I'm trying. I want you to embrace the Lord's lessons. And the lesson is, take heed, therefore, how ye hear. Don't take heed so that you'll know if they're regenerate or not by how they hear. Are you? Okay. One more. Oh, you want an obscure one? Here we go. Luke 16. I gave it to you recently. Luke 16, 1 through 9. It's the parable of the unjust steward. Oh, yes. The unjust steward. Very obscure to most and impossible to grasp for most. 
Do you remember it? Verse 1, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Uh, please keep that in mind. That uh, this certain rich man didn't like the steward wasting his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Does this rich man like having his assets wasted by the steward? Can, you, can we start off with that? Because the steward's going to waste some more of his assets. He's going to mess around with his accounts receivable ledger. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I've done it before. I linked it to you in the preparatory email last night. Some get distracted by the implied endorsement of a man's fraudulent protection of his career. This man goes out and changes the accounts receivable ledger, cheating the rich man out of somewhere between 25 and 50% of his assets on the AR ledger. And he gets commended. He gets commended for it. But what does he get commended for? Stealing from the rich man? Or does he get commended by being very sagacious and prudent about the future, protecting his career? That by reducing the accounts receivable for my master, I'm reducing the accounts payable for future employers, and they're going to like me. So that when I get fired by this guy, then I'm going to go with those guys because I will have cut their accounts payable by 25 to 50%, and they're going to want to hire me. Are you all with me? Yes. What should we learn? Should we learn that if you think that you're, there's an industry slowdown or your company is about to lay off, that you should start stealing and embezzling in order to provide for yourself after you lose your job. Why not? Why not? After all, we could ask, who is the porter? You want to mess around with the porter? Then I'm going to accuse you of being this kind of a sinner. Because you're messing around with the parable and you're missing the lesson. Do you know what the lesson is of these nine verses? Prepare for the future. It's the Boy Scout motto. Be prepared. Because do you know what's coming? Hell fire. And the great day of judgment. And so you want to prepare for it. And Jesus said the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light because they will put their conspiring wicked minds to work to think of if I adjust the AR ledger for my master, that's adjusting the AP ledgers for future employers for me. They know how to take care of themselves. This is not an endorsement of wickedness. This is an endorsement of prudent planning for the future, and Christians should prudently plan for the future by making their calling and election sure so that when that day comes, they can never fall. Does it say that? It does say that. But you gotta, you got to read carefully, and there was a whole sermon preached on it. Do you think we can come back to John 10 in time for our break? Am I embarrassed? A little bit. But I have prayed about this. Amen. And I wanted to go over this with you this thoroughly. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, are describing thieves and robbers versus shepherds. Don't try to put Jesus in there as the shepherd, even though he is the good shepherd. That doesn't come up until verse 11. He says he's the door based on his first pass 
over this parable. Verse 7, Then said Jesus unto them again, because he said, Verily, verily, in the first verse, now he is speaking again in the seventh verse, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me, because he is the Messiah of God, he is the Christ of God, he is the Shiloh of Jacob, he is the son of David, there was no one else with the ministry of Jesus Christ. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Your ministry, your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your lawyers, your scribes, they're thieves and robbers. They do not have a divine mission from God. I came the right way. I'm the owner of the sheep. The owner of the sheep has given me access to the sheep because I'm the door. For any man to be in the sheepfold and be a sheep, he's got to go through me because I am the door. For any under-shepherd to have a ministry that is pleasing to God and profitable for the sheep, they have to go through the door. I'm the door. There were apostles that, that were made apostles by the door, and every under-shepherd had better take heed how he treats the flock because the only way to treat the flock is by the way of the door, and the door is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul told ministers, though it is a general epistle, there are some verses in there about the ministers that were part of that church when Paul wrote them and said, there is one foundation that's been laid, and that foundation is Christ Jesus. If any man build on that foundation, wood, hay, or stubble, it's all going to get burned up. But if he builds on it gold, silver, and precious stones, it will last. And if any man defiles the temple of God, that's the sheepfold, him will God destroy. Those are thieves and robbers that come in and do not build on the door Christ Jesus. And so for just a few verses, we have Jesus being the door, which is the access of sheep into the sheepfold. It's, the, it's egress from the sheepfold out to pasture. It's the authority of ownership. Jesus owns the flock. For anyone to get in, they've got to go through him. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No one gets into the kingdom of heaven but by repentance and falling on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you fall on this rock, you'll be broken. But if this rock falls on you, it will grind you to powder. That's the door. And so for just a few verses, he surprises us by not saying, I am the good shepherd in verse 7, but saying, I am the door. Because he wants us to realize access and egress is by him and only him. By me, if any man enter in, seize the door. He shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The kingdom of heaven is the place of salvation. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Because there's a practical salvation by being in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and in one of his local churches as a subset of that. And she'll go in and out and find pasture. And he jumps back to the thief in verse 10. So we're talking about ministerial differences. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now here he is coming. And he sounds different than a stationary door. And he's going to say that in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. So he is transitioning in verses 10 and 11 from being the door to being the shepherd, and then we can take up when we come back from break and go as fast and as far as we can with him being the good shepherd. But until then, verses 7, 8, and 9, he is the door. As the door, he is the means of getting in the sheepfold as a sheep. He is the means of anyone being a shepherd, an under-shepherd of the sheep. 
He is the rightful way of getting in and getting out of the sheepfold. There are sheep that get out of the sheepfold a different way. A thief or a robber crawls over the wall, takes them by the scruff of the neck or the legs, puts them in a bag, and hauls them back over. He's the door. There's only one way in and one way out. And we want him to be our door. Then we want him to be the shepherd that uses his own door. You say, I just can't handle that. Well, I'm sorry, because that's what he does in John chapter 10. He says, I'm the door when you think he's the shepherd. And then he's going to say he's the shepherd when you thought he was the door. Because he's both. Amen. He's absolutely both. You can't get in except through him. You can't get out except through him. There is no ministry of those sheep except through him. And then he's the ultimate minister of the sheep anyway, because he is the good shepherd and he's going to lay down his life for the sheep, even for us Gentile sheep. I know what I just did. I just went back and covered less ground than I did last Sunday morning. The second time around. I have labored with this all week. It has tormented me until this is what you get from the Lord. I do not want you to be messed up by parables. Amen. I do not want you speculating about phrases in verses 1 through 5. If you want to speculate about them, find them true somewhere else where it's not a parable and doctrine is being taught. This is just getting you caught up to speed on how sheep and shepherds get along. And he'll, he'll tell us how much he wants to apply toward him and us in the verses that follow. Okay? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.